We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Tom Wilson, member of the Order of Canada, modern Mohawk visual artist, Juno Award-winning musician Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, and the best-selling author of Beautiful Scars. New book, Mohawk Warriors, Hunters in Chief, a collection of his paintings that explore what it means to be removed and then reconnected with your cultural heritage. Tom Wilson is here now. Tom, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, really well. Nice talking to you, Scott, especially on this beautiful afternoon. You know, I haven't chatted with you in a while, and I keep meaning to. And I, I wanted, I, we were at the Junk House. My wife and I were at the Junk House show at uh, Bridgeworks uh, yeah, way back when. What an incredible night that was, Tom. I hadn't seen the band, obviously, in 100 years. So it was so great to see you guys together. And, of course, the addition of the new musicians and such. And you guys were bang on. It was an amazing show. And I got to tell you right now, you are one of the best frontmans for a band I I have ever seen your stories are amazing when you wove through the stuff about springsteen and even brought up the freak olympics i was absolutely howling so kudos to you and the guys and everybody uh what an incredible show that was and and i hope to see you again do it do it do oh, the same thanks, thing Scott. well we're you know what we did two shows celebrating the 30th anniversary of uh, our first album strays which, uh, as I mentioned before, Sony Music, Columbia Records, I hadn't heard from them in about 25 years. <laughs> yeah, the truth. Mm. Uh, but Strays sold so many records, I guess, around the world, or enough records around the world that they released it. We did two shows, and now we're doing like five shows this summer, including one in Brantford uh, with the Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, wow. And, and uh, the True. So... You know what? Uh, I guess we're we're going back out. I guess some other people thought we were pretty good too. No, good for you. Congratulations to you. And I remember when uh, I think it was when I was getting a paddle off you, and I was just so excited that you were doing shows with Junk House. And I remember mm-hmm. saying, "Come on, Tom, like record an album, go on tour." You said, "I got too much stuff going on, and I'm getting too old." I remember that night. It took us two days to get over that, and I'm thinking, "How does this guy get up and do it every night? I can barely attend and get up the next day." <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Those are questions I'm asking myself. I guess I'm on the right medication. Uh, legal, legal, legal medication, that is. So let's talk about this new book. Uh, obviously, your art, uh, something that you started, uh, I think it was back in about 1995-ish or so, and then it has progressed. And, and, and now look where you are. Describe this book. Talk about it. Um, the book is a uh, one of those copy table style books of my art, which is, I guess uh, it's a real compliment, first of all. Anybody who takes interest in, in my work, I, I appreciate, you know. But um, to have Goose Lane Publications come forward and say uh, that they want to do a book of my art, so it's a collection of, uh, uh, of my paintings uh, between uh, 2016 and, uh, and present. And uh, also there's... Uh, 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 writing. There's uh, uh, an essay by curator David Liss, who's one of the most sought after and respected curators in Canada, let alone the world. And uh, he's a guy from Hamilton, Ontario, David Liss. He's one of those people that has been a contributor to uh, our culture uh, for the last 40 years. And he's one of those names that doesn't pop up in Hamilton is this guy's from Hamilton, but David Liss is from Hamilton, and in fact, his family is the uh, are the people that I wrote Shine for. So oh, wow. there's there's a wild connection. Scott. Yeah, in any really. Case, it, his essays in there. Ryan McMahon, my son-in-law, interviews me, and also I do writing in there. But the book is fantastic, and it's getting a great response. And we've launched it at the Cultural Goods Gallery in Toronto for an exhibit that was only supposed to last nine days and we're into a month now they've held it over and uh it's getting a great response too i'm just overjoyed that my visual art is is getting some recognition it's it's a wonderful thing uh how has this progressed over the years if you look at something you've done you did way back when compared to something you've done in the last year what do you see more detail uh, obviously more uh, obsessive compulsive behavior going on in my later years. I think, Scott, to tell you the truth, as I get older and lose more testosterone, <laughs> I cry more and I get more obsessive compulsive. So 
Um, I know you're a little younger than me, Scott, but you have a lot that to look forward to. Get ready to cry and get ready to become more obsessive. <laughs> I'm already that way now. That's going to be hell for me. So what's the future? I know this reception's closing down Thursday, March uh, 7th. What's, what's the future hold? Well, March the 7th, we have an open, open to the public event where we're performing. We have uh, uh, Mohawk uh, drummer and singer uh, Phil Davis coming in from uh, from uh, Niagara Falls. And uh, we're also going to perform a short concert there with my son, Thompson Wilson and Jesse O'Brien on piano. So we're going to, we're going to kind of salute the, uh, the exhibit and uh, say goodbye to the cultural goods gallery in Toronto on March 7th. After that, I'm currently writing a play that opens up at theater Aquarius uh, on uh April 26th, we open, and that runs for three weeks. Beautiful Scars, the musical, is mm. is opening, and we're really excited about that. That's the next focus, that, uh, the next thing that I'm working on. And I'm also finishing the second book still for Penguin Random House. But I'll tell you that I have to go to my – it goes to copy editing in June. So uh, when I say I'm, I've been saying I've been finishing the book for about three years – now I'm really finishing the books, guys. Tom Wilson, busier than ever, a member of the Order of Canada, Mohawk visual artist, well-known Juno Award winner, uh, you know the bands, and of course his latest, Mohawk Warriors, Hunters and Chiefs, a collection of his paintings that explore what it means to be removed and reconnected with your cultural heritage. Tom, always fun. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend, will you? All right, lots uh, talking about former Prime Minister uh, Brian Mulroney, who has passed away at the age of 84. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and with us now, and get his take. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. Doing well. How are you? So far, so good. Lots of tributes coming in, no matter what the political stripe is. And I guess that's common for a a situation like this. Um, How are people feeling on a day like today? Um, I, I, I think it, it depends, but I think there's a lot of people showing great appreciation for Mr. Mulroney and also a sense of loss. I think Mr. Mulroney, politician from a different era, different approach to politics than you see today. And yeah, I think you've heard a lot of people, Scott, uh, lament that, uh, the, the, the fact that we are now in this era of difference. Um, and I think that, uh, that's, that's come out loud and clear today. And a lot of stories about Mr. Mulroney's kindness as well. Too, which is uh, one thing that I don't think many people uh, always recognize. Uh, on what you just said, do politicians get reflective on a day like today? Does it make them look inward or just for about 15 uh, seconds? It does. I, I look, everybody's saying the right things about it. But I, I don't think necessarily that you've seen a, a great full moment of reflection. We'll see in a week or two, I guess, Scott, when things return to normal on that front. But uh, uh, I, I would hope they do. I mean, there's a lot to be said about how they, that, that the era of Mr. Mulroney, Mr. Kretschem, and Mr. Kretschem said it so well last night, too, right? He said, look, we were opponents, but it was like a hockey game. Uh, we would go off the ice yeah. and we could have a beer together, and we didn't personally um, engage in the politics of self-destruction, a personal destruction, which is far too common in this era. Uh, I was going to ask you, you talked about different era, um, you know, a different approach. Expand on that a little bit. And, and it's hard to go back to a different time, a different era. But but how is it different? Well, there was a real connection between parliamentarians. And you've actually heard some of this class, sort of the class of 2021 uh, talk about that, that, you know, COVID initially screwed up their ability to meet in person and get to know each other across party lines. In those days, look, there was the theater. There's always been theater in politics and there's always mm-hmm. been partisanship, but you had many more cross-party friendships. You had many more um, engagements in different settings that is almost discouraged today. You're almost encouraged to just disdain somebody because you're a liberal and they're a conservative or that person's an NDP and they're a block. And that's not what Canada's about. You can represent views. You can represent regions. But ultimately, as Mr. Kretschmann said about Mr. Mulroney, you know, you're to try and get um, do do things for Canada. Was he divisive? 
Whatever, yeah. I mean, I think any leader invariably is divisive. Uh, yeah, look, you know where I'm from. Uh, look at the Meech Lake Accord and the impact that that had on people in my province. Uh, you know, Clyde Wells stood against it. Um, he and Mr. Mulroney had some pretty heated debates and disagreements there. But, um, you know, Quebec, you know, Mr. Murray was impassioned to try and bring Quebec into the Constitution. That didn't happen, but, uh, but, but certainly people felt divided. In your neck of the woods, remember the uh, hue and cry over free trade, right? Yep. And even to this day, you will still find people who think free trade isn't the economic salvation that me and many others and, and the economy has proven that it is. So, uh, so certainly you have that division. If so controversial, why so uh, why so respected and thought of now? Because he made and did substantive things. I mean, regardless of whether you like Brian Mulroney or not, he, this man was a global player. I mean, Scott, yeah, only Canadian that I can think of to eulogize not one but two American presidents. Only Canadian leader, well, he was the leader at that time, to force Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan to end apartheid. Uh, Encouraged George Bush to, George Bush Sr., you know, to to deal with Iraq. Uh, This man uh, just did substantive, the first Green Prime Minister. I mean, Justin Trudeau may catch him in time and legacy there, but Brian Mulroney, a progressive conservative, the Acid Rain Treaty, which, as you know, was big for communities like Hamilton and elsewhere because all of that water, rain coming across the border uh, created by the yeah. factories, all of that. Like, he did things, and I think people admired that. He wasn't afraid to do big, bold things. Uh, and kept working right till the end, even on NAFTA 2.0. Listen, I uh, my uh, yes, and uh, where I came from, he did so much for us. He brought oil and gas, helped bring oil and gas to Atlantic Canada. Scott, two years ago, I was on the phone with him um, because he was concerned about uh, an oil project that was closing on the East Coast or was in jeopardy on the East Coast, and he was going to give a speech, and I was helping him a little bit. No, I played no significant role. I only mention it to say that, you know, this guy, to your point, never stopped working. He spent years trying to empower Atlantic Canada because don't forget that's where he was first elected. So yeah. whether it was Atlantic Canada, whether it was Hamilton, whether it was, you know, Bay Como where he's from, he always felt he had a duty to continue to do things. What could the current conservative leader learn from Brian Mulroney? So much. I mean any look to be fair, it's not just Pierre Polyev, I think yeah. You know, so much of today's politics is about gotcha and transaction, uh, about immediate policy as opposed to being big and bold. We kind of moved away from big and bold about 15 years ago because it required different kinds of approaches and effort. It made it was about winning people over. Also, there's lessons about kindness and, and civility that we often lament, but, you know, leaders can go in that direction. That isn't just for Pierre Polyev. That's for all of us, the federal leaders. Uh, we can do better. How did he feel about the carbon tax? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I think in some ways it'll probably get described as his version of the GSP, right? And that was a huge issue where you're calling from. Of course, Sheila Copps, the Liberals said they were going to tear it up. They didn't. Sheila said she was going to step down, which she did, and ran again. But yeah, Brian Mulroney was the last prime minister to bring in a tax of significance that nobody has been able to pull down. And uh, what brought in 30 years ago, still with us today, it's helped empower a lot of um, federal government policy. And maybe he viewed, I don't know, but I suspect the carbon uh, tax may be being viewed in that manner in some circles. A uh, world reaction to his passing on the world stage. Well, I saw already um, the Bush Foundation. So George H. W. Bush Foundation put out a statement. I saw uh, George W. Bush, the son of George H. W., put out a statement. Uh, I've seen, you know, I looked through the BBC and elsewhere today. He was known around the world still, and people seem to be recognizing the great work he did for the for the globe. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data on the passing of Brian Mulroney at age 84. Tim, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend.
You too, buddy. Take care. Bye. All right. The Ancaster Food Drive needs volunteers as well as donations. The 32nd edition of happens tomorrow to talk more about all of this. Tom Ippolito is with us, co-chair of the Ancaster Community Food Drive, and here now. Tom, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Give us all the details, Tom, to some who may not know anything about about it. Tell us what this is. Perfect. Well, this is our 32nd annual Ancaster Community Food Drive. It's our, uh, as I say, it's our annual event. Uh, We uh, purposely do this uh, in March of every year because uh, we tend to forget to donate food after the Christmas season. Uh, It's a one-day door-to-door blitz in the Ancaster area. We've got uh, hundreds of volunteers that have roots, and they'll be picking up food from all the homes and then uh, delivering it to the Ancaster uh, Fairgrounds for the volunteers there to then sort it. Uh, And then uh, from there, we distribute it to the eight agencies in the Hamilton area so we can fill their shelves. Give us a bit of history. How did this all get started? Well, like I said, it's it's our 32nd year. So uh, uh, obviously about 32 years ago, it was initiated by the vision of the uh, Ancaster Ministerial Association and the support of the citizens and businesses, schools and community agencies in the Ancaster area. They came together. uh, They saw that there was a need in Hamilton. And, uh, and thought, why not do a, a food drive, an annual one, especially after the Christmas season uh, where there is a need. And uh, from there, it just grew. Uh, we supported uh, maybe one or two agencies in the beginning and then uh, grew to about eight agencies. Um, and, and now, 32 years later, uh, we're, uh, we're approaching a two million pound cumulative uh, collection hmm. over a period of time. So we're excited you, to do that tomorrow. Do you expect to hit two million pounds this year? We are. We're about 30,000 pounds shy of the uh, 2 million pound mark. Uh, We anticipate that probably around late morning, I'd say around noon, we'll be uh, announcing the uh, 2 million pound mark. So we're excited about that milestone. That's a great accomplishment. All right. As any great organization like this, any great drive, it needs volunteers. How can we help out? Yep. So um, obviously, uh, if anybody would like to uh, come directly to the fairgrounds to help us out, Uh, We can always use sorters both uh, inside and we can also use the help outside as the cars come along and uh, we take the food from their their trunks. Uh, We always need people to help out on that end. Um, But uh, uh, basically show up at the Arncaster Fairgrounds. Uh, We'll find a job for you. Uh, It's a great opportunity for uh, high schoolers. Uh, They can get their volunteer hours um, and we'll provide them with the paperwork to support that. Um, but uh, we're anticipating uh, a great weather day as well. Um, so it's just a, a great day for, for families, uh, everyone of all ages uh, to come out and, uh, and help uh, support it. Uh, if we have some roots, uh, we'll tell you to go out there and collect some food from homes. Um, you know, we'll send you out. But uh, uh, again, uh, it's, uh, it's an unbelievable community event uh, with, with hundreds and hundreds of people that uh, help out. Uh, to collect food uh, in the one day so that we can help out the agencies in Hamilton. And by the way, we also feed the volunteers. So we uh, oh. we have the generosity of many restaurants in the area that will be providing food for them. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, they'll be looked after. And what is the best way to donate to this cause? Perfect. So if you are in Ancaster, uh, I just want to remind everyone to have their food out on their porch um, by about 8 a.m., um, if they can't do that, uh, there's the two fire stations that they can go out and, uh, and donate the food there, and then we'll uh, arrange pickup from there. Um, as well, if, uh, if food is not uh, uh, something that could be done, uh, you can go on our, onto our website, www.ancasterfoodrive.ca. Uh, uh, there's the opportunity of doing some financial donations as well. Uh, and we allow uh, those who go on it to uh, pick the agency that they want to support. And, and do their best to uh, maybe offer a bit of a donation to help them out. What's this year been like for you, Tom? Um, we certainly hear more and more and more stress being put on local food banks. Um, what's it been like trying to collect, trying to get donations in? Yeah, so uh, we, we meet with the agencies uh, about a month prior to the event. And uh, unfortunately, the news uh, gets... Uh, more more dire uh, each year as, mm. as their needs increase and uh, and 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 it's 
basically what they're telling us is that the need is greater than ever um, and that they rely on us and they rely on the community of Ancaster to uh, help them out for a period of time. Now, unfortunately, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping to get about 100,000 pounds of food tomorrow, um, but they're telling us that that portion that's divvied up with the agencies uh, will probably only last them for a few weeks, um, but, uh, but it'll help them uh, at a time of need. So um, it's there. Um, obviously, we're, we're hoping that uh, the community can come together. Uh, anyone uh, outside the community, please, by all means, come visit us. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll take whatever donations we can get to help them out. Um, but uh, also, if you just want to volunteer, you'll, you'll see the great work that, um, that the community is doing to help the agencies. The Ancaster Food Drive happening this Saturday. It's a 32nd edition of, and always looking for volunteers as well as donations. And you can find out more on their website on how you can help them help everybody else. Tom Ippolito with his co-chair of the Ancaster Community Food Drive. Good luck this year, Tom. Thanks. Oh, Scott, we're going to have a successful uh, day tomorrow, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be amazing. So thank you, Scott, for this opportunity. We've talked an awful lot about car theft, more than I'd probably like to on this show. But, man, you, you can't deny it. And and I don't know about you, but ask yourself this. Have you or do you know somebody who's had their car stolen recently? And at one time, no, I don't know anybody that's had their car. Oh, yeah, maybe once way back when. Now I'm hearing of people, uh, several people I know, like three that have had their car stolen, and one has had that, had it stolen twice. How does that happen? Uh, Lorraine Summerfelt with us, columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. With us now, Lorraine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm a little scared, to be honest, Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I don't think I'm ever going <laughs> to... I, I don't think I'm ever going to buy a new car again. Not like it's an option by any means, but, um, you know, what I'm concerned about, Lorraine, is I've heard a couple of situations where people have gotten their cars stolen like two and three times. Yep. To me, this isn't people out running around. This is organized crime, and somebody's name is on a list. What are your thoughts yep. with repeat repeat thefts from the same property? Well, we already know Canada is a candy store for other parts of the world. They're filling shopping lists. And those top 10 lists that get published, it's the Range Rovers, it's the SUVs, the pickup trucks, all the new stuff. 10 years ago, it was old stuff that was easy to steal. Now it's brand new stuff that is supposed to be tougher to steal. It's not. And on that note, uh, remember the old days, the fob, the key fob, the dreaded key fob, uh, put it under your pillow, put it in a vault, put it wherever. I don't think that matters anymore. They sit in your uh, seat with a laptop and create their own. Yeah, it's the the manufacturers. They just had this big summit in Ottawa and everyone's supposed to be there. Law enforcement, legislation. This, if you ask on Monday, I've got a column coming out. You need to read it. The manufacturers owe consumers better. We're getting jacked around by insurance companies, which is part of this call. Um, they could stop this, I believe. And tell me about your, your computer and your phone. How do you get into them? You have a password, right? Yeah. Your, your car could have a password. Why aren't they doing it? They could solve this. The stuff is there. You know when you see equipment by the side of the highway, the diggers and stuff? All that's password yeah. coded. Everything. Yeah. So Good I went point. digging around. Monday's column. You're going to like it. <laughs> all right. We might as well just book you in for Monday again. All right. So like, yeah. we'll get in touch on Monday, too. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard people say that it's worse here than other places. Why is because the cars are sold all over the place. Why do we seem to be a target? Because it'd be just as easy to get one in the U.S., no? Well, in the U.S., what's happening is what's being stolen there is the muscle cars. So you'd be in trouble. They want the chargers and the challengers and stuff like that because they're staying in the country. In Canada, they're being exported. And we are a source country around the world. We are a huge, huge source country. And all this stuff is funding terrorism. It's guns, drugs, trafficking. Like It's so much bigger than stolen cars. And we have leaky, leaky borders. And they put some more money to the border, like Montreal, the port in Montreal is notorious for this. So they keep shoveling money to law enforcement. And it is organized crime, absolutely. And the kid that's stealing it in the driveway that's caught on everybody's cameras, they're the tail end of the problem. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's organized crime. 
but the manufacturers sit there and they go, okay, we've got key fobs now that you can, you know, make them go to sleep and that'll stop the relay attacks. It's not about relay attacks anymore. They're making their own fobs. They don't need your fob. They don't need to intercept a signal. It's ridiculous. The manufacturers are getting away with murder. Consumers should be angry at our insurance rates. 140 bucks of your premium goes to theft. So uh, you, you talk. We're talking about trackers too. That uh, some insurance companies are now saying. I, I'm guessing if you got a certain vehicle that's that's on that list, you got to put the tracker on, and that's a cost to you. I've heard that uh, anecdotally that they may steal your car, but they'll leave it in a lot somewhere for 24 hours because if you have a tracker, then you'll come and get it, and then if you don't get it in 24 hours, then they'll take it and put it on the on the boat and off it goes. Yep, they call it cooling off. They leave it to cool yeah. off in parking lots, like at malls and things like that. They also track you from malls. They'll put an air tag or a tracker on the cars and then come and get it from your driveway in the night. So they're so far ahead of everything that everyone else is doing. But for consumers, it's so not fair. Why do you spend tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars on a vehicle and then you're supposed to go spend more to make it safe? What other product do we put up with this on? Like, how is this okay? It's not. And And, and companies are scrambling. You know, you often hear, well, whatever the manufacturers would do, then the bad guys are going to stay one step ahead of it. But you're convinced we can put in, we can at least trim this. I'm not the only one. A guy brought this to me. He goes, goes, why? Why won't they do this? Like your, your phone, no one's stealing your phone and your laptop. Yeah. Like we we had an iPad. My kid broke up with, with the girl. We can't get into it. It's a brand new iPad. <laughs> we couldn't get into hey, it. Hey, there's your column right there, Lorraine. <laughs> yeah. Go, no, go with that one. It's yeah. a kid that would kill me. But, you know, we can do this. The tech is already there. But I'll tell you why they won't do it. They want to be the only ones that have access to your car. They don't want right to repair. They don't want you mm. to be able to take it somewhere else. And in a very short time, most of the features in your car are going to be by subscription only. They want to control it. And they see it's a multi-billion dollar business going forward, subscription stuff. It's coming. You're going to buy a car that you think has heated seats and this and this and this. No, you're going to have to pay for it after a year, just like OnStar or Sirius or any of these other things. Oh, man. Yeah, you're going to get more shows out of me in the next couple of years. (laughs) I can't believe that. All right. Well, tentatively, Pencil is in for Monday. I'll tell Will to give you a call. And the column's coming. When's the column out? Monday morning. Okay, Monday morning. There you go. All right, Lorraine Somerville with his columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. More to come on Monday on Car Theft. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks, you too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've been talking about the passing of Prime Minister Brian Mulroney at age 84 and lots of tributes coming him from a business and economic standpoint. How did he fare? Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks very much, Scott. Yes, doing very well. So as uh, from a business or economic uh, point of view, how was Prime Minister Brian Mulroney uh, uh, during his term? I would rank him on business and economic issues because there's other dimensions, foreign policy, Quebec, of course, uh, how the relationship Quebec and the rest of Canada. But on business and economic issues, I would rank him as the single most important, most transformative prime minister in the history of our country. I know that sounds strong to many people. So now let me explain why precisely that is a factually, empirically correct statement. From the time of Sir John A. Macdonald, who was a conservative prime minister, let's remember, that's 1867, until Brian Mulroney, Canada had the national policy. It was called the national policy. And for 150 years, we said, we don't want foreigners to be able to come into Canada. So what we did is we set up the national policy was high tariff barriers on everything and anything that was brought into Canada. And so we tried to create this sort of fortress Canada. You see this today in many developing countries that do this, in countries I've taught in. Uh, Iran has done this. Uh, Turkey has done this. Uh, uh, Venezuela, I haven't taught in Venezuela, but Venezuela has done this. Cuba has done this. And they surround themselves with extraordinary protectionism. 
protectionist measures. And that was the, the economic policy of our country for 150 years under both liberals and conservatives. So this isn't a partisan comment. Sir Johnny MacDonald was the conservative who created the national policy. And, uh, and what Mulroney did was he realized that that policy, while it may have been effective in the 1800s and the early 1900s, he had the vision to understand that that was not going to work in this new modern economy, you know, the internet and the digital economy emerging and so forth. He knew that that was no longer viable or sustainable. And so he had the most, the fight of his life, uh, the most important election ever um, in 1988, when he took on John Turner and who tried to save the McDonald policy of the, the national policy of uh, national protectionism. And we got NAFTA. NAFTA was the brainchild of, of, of Brian Mulroney, or at least he's the political father of it. He was the one who made it happen. And it opened up our economy to all kinds of uh, prosperity. Second, and very quickly, for 150 years, we had believed, parallel to the national policy, we believed that the government should do an awful lot of things. Government should own many, many things. And the government owned Canadian National Railroad. It owned Air Canada. And it owned many, hundreds of other ground corporations. <laughs> Mulroney in the 1980s, when he got into power, started to privatize those so-called commercial crowns. Air Canada was privatized because of Brian Mulroney. Canadian National Railroad was privatized because of Brian Mulroney. Petro-Canada was privatized because of Brian Mulroney, which brought more competitiveness into the Canadian economy. So when you look at this unbelievable track record where he basically up to overturned 150 years of history to create a better country, a more dynamic economy, he's got to, for those reasons, be ranked the single most important prime minister in, in 150 years. Uh, many are paying tribute, and you can't help but thinking where the country is right now. And uh, I was asking some of our other guests his view on carbon tax and actually found an article from 2016 from the CBC where uh, Brian Mulroney said of the carbon tax, if we go this alone, it's going to cost us dearly because we can't be competitive uh, with the United States. At the time, I think both Trump and Hillary Cl uh, Clinton were running for president, and neither yes. the Democrats or the Republicans supported a carbon tax of any kind. And he said, if, we, if they're not doing it, this is going to hurt us. Has that, is that what has happened here? Yes, yes. And thank you for bringing that up, Scott, because I should have mentioned my third point, because I said there was two. There's really three reasons why he was so important to our country. All my life, my entire life in this country, amongst professors, I am a professor, uh, uh, and in Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal, where you know the 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 um the liberal elites live, uh, the progressive liberal elites live. It has always been very fashionable to be anti-American. I yeah. believe me, I have been in the academy for thirty-seven years. Okay, and it's just it's the default position. Americans are you know they're kind of you know, they're fat, you know, they have too many guns, they kill everybody, and they're not as good as we are. You know, we all know that, right? Yep. Right? Yep. Mulroney tackled that prejudice, and it was a prejudice, and said, look, the United States is the largest and most dynamic country in the world. We cannot go the other way. Mr. Trudeau Pierre was saying, we need a third way. We got to go away from America. And he said, this is nuts. This is crazy. We share a 9,000-kilometer border. We have to be a partner joined at the hip, and we can't go a separate policy, whether it's on carbon tax or any other major policy. Mulroney was right, and Mr. Trudeau then was wrong, and the current prime minister is wrong on that. We are, we are only one-tenth the size of the United States. We are smaller than the state of California. What can uh, future or current politicians learn from Mulroney from an economic or business standpoint? Uh, I think it shows a couple of things is, is that you can be honorable and principled, as Mr. Mulroney was on public policy. You can stand up for policies that you know are right because there's, there's evidence there to support it. He was a big believer in evidence-based data. He quoted statistics all the time to show to show that. And it the stereotypes of the conservative as being this, you know, right right wing Trumpian troglodyte uh, moron 
who drools and doesn't can't complete a single sentence. These are crude stereotypes. Believe me, if someone's saying, where did these come from? Can I remind everybody? I have been in the academy for 37 years, and I've heard every one of these stereotypes. Believe me, and I don't mean once in 37 years. Consistently, routinely, you hear this at academic conferences. This is the default position. And so my point is, you can be an intelligent conservative. That's where I'm going with this. Brian Mulroney, excuse me, was an intelligent conservative. He read deeply, which is amazing. He he grew up in Baycomo. His father was an electrician. His parents never went to university. He truly came from the working class. He was going to be a truck driver if he had never got out of Baycomo. And he was intelligent. He was thoughtful. He read. And so you can be an intelligent conservative as opposed to being the crude stereotype of the conservative that one hears from the mainstream media daily. And everybody knows what I'm talking about if they're going to be honest. There are many crude stereotypes of conservatism. You hear it all the time. And and of course, everybody uses Trump as their sort of, there's the typical conservative when Trump is the most untypical conservative ever. In fact, I don't believe Trump is a conservative. Brian Mulroney was an authentic, economic, conservative and a progressive conservative, a red Tory. And once called the greenest prime minister of all time. Yes. Uh, doctor, he, we got to cut it can off. Can I just get one point yep, in? Go ahead. He yep, ended go ahead. acid rain. There's no yeah. acid rain in Canada anymore. Yeah. Toronto yeah. has no smog because of he and Ronald Reagan, another conservative. They cleaned up the environment. Something we don't hear a lot nowadays. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, on the passing of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Ian, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The feds are putting more into nuclear energy. And our guest attended a meeting where these announcements uh, were brought to the public. David Novog with us, a professor in the Department of Engineering and with Mac- uh, McMaster University is here now. David, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, Federal Energy and Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson reaffirms his government support for the nuclear industry with a $50 million investment to expand generation in Ontario while speaking to the Canadian Nuclear Association's annual conference. And I assume you were there, David. Are you surprised this hasn't gotten more attention? Actually, I I think so far, you know, for for an investment of that magnitude, it it has been. uh, I saw some things in the paper today. It's a big investment, and I mean, it's the first of many investments that I think will have to take place. One of the most interesting things here in Canada is, you know, we haven't done something like what they're proposing in Bruce in about 30 or 40 years. So this money is really dedicated to getting the planning right before, you know, the the, the even larger investments come. Uh, we all remember uh, the infancy of nuclear energy in this country and, of course, Pickering and the concerns around that and, and as things uh, progressed and expanded. But as you said, there hasn't been a lot of new investment and, you know, many sort of became cautious about nuclear. Is that changing? Is the attitude changing towards nuclear energy and its future here? Yeah, I think I think there's lots of evidence with that and that's really come from you know bruce power and opg are are both executing some of the biggest most complicated projects going on in north america today and and they've been doing it on time and on budget and i think that's really giving government and other industries uh, a lot of confidence to invest going forward uh, what about challenges uh, the, in, in reaction to the negative? What are the concerns? Why are people still concerned about this form of energy? I think, you know, there's, there's, there's been, uh, in recent years even, a lot of issues around uh, cost control in, in projects of this magnitude. And I mean, not just in nuclear. I think any time we start looking in the, in the projects at the multi-billion dollars, there's probably a a highway of examples of things that didn't go right. So I, I think that's really, you know, important. I think that's why this phase, you know, the next 12 months of what goes on at Bruce and, and making the plan rock solid, that'll, that'll be what the focus is of, of most people in industry. Is this industry growing? We're good at this. Can we, can we sell this to others? Yeah, I think, you know, we already see evidence on that. On the SMRs, the small modular reactors, they're looking at Darlington. There's tremendous 
you know, pull from places like Poland and, and even Saskatchewan that are all looking at, at adopting that kind of technology as a, as a, as a leveraging OPG's initial investments here. You know, one of the challenges I meant to say is, and it came up a lot at the meeting where, where the minister was speaking, we'll be on capacity building, you know, like we'll need, we'll need thousands of new welders and trades and engineers and, 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 you know, that type of demand for in the nuclear space hasn't been there for decades. So near and dear to my heart at McMaster, of course, and, you know, working with Mohawk is trying to think of a pathway to get, you know, enough young, talented people in place in time to do those builds. Uh, 50 million investment to expand generation. Where does that money go? What is it actually going to be used for? So the, the first thing before you're allowed to build a nuclear power plant is to do an environmental assessment. And, and this involves lots of measurements. You know, you, you'd imagine you got to measure migratory pathways of animals and water and, 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 and airborne. And you have to ensure that your project is really going to disturb them in the least amount of ways possible. And so a large part of the next several years will be engagement with communities, discussion of the environmental, uh, you know, considerations that have to go into the build. And so for the next three years, I think you'll hear a lot of, of information coming through on, on environmental impacts, on, on staffing, on hiring, and, and on community input into that process. Can we do this uh, and and do it within a timely manner? In other words, uh, study after study, delay after delay. Can we can we can can we keep this within a timeline? Get it done per se. Yeah, you know, I I have a lot of confidence. I I see I'm more confident than I've ever been in my 20 or 30 year career based on based on the successes that nuclear in Ontario has had recently, and and you know that gives me a lot of positivity. And I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big, you know, environmental supporter guy. So when I look at things like climate change, I, I, not only am I positive and, and hopeful on the projects, I think we need to succeed. Like we need to start electrifying more things like steel making and cars. And, and so, you know, it's both, I'm both positive and I got, you know, a, a lot of um, uh, hope that this can be a big part of our climate change solution. David Nobog with us, professor in the Department of Engineering at McMaster University, and was at the announcement yesterday, $50 million to expand nuclear power generation in Ontario, to speaking to the Canadian Nuclear Association. David, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Very well, Scott. Thank you. We've talked for a while about the uh, laboratory in Winnipeg, uh, which obviously works on uh, top secret uh, scientific virus stuff and and in collaboration and such. And we also remember that uh, way back when uh, there were two uh, Chinese scientists who were let go for uh, apparently sharing information with those they shouldn't be, and just the lack of security around this lab. Canada stopped sharing dangerous pathogens with China through its high-security infectious diseases lab, but other collaborations continue despite security breaches and a warning from Canada's spy agency of the threat that Beijing poses. To talk more about all of this, Stephen Chase is with us, senior parliamentary reporter to the Globe and Mail, and here now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, glad to be here. So uh, do we still know or do we have any idea what happened to these two? What uh, sent the red flag up to get them fired, why they were let go? Sure. Um, there's a lot in these documents. And I should uh, preface this by saying the public should have had these documents three years ago. What has happened is incredible example of stonewalling here. Um, journalists are all about the right to know. And uh, we should have known this three years ago. These people um, came to the attention of, of authorities at the Public Health Agency of Canada because they worked at this top secret, or sorry, top uh, top level infectious disease lab in, in Winnipeg. And the first thing that happened was that the authorities discovered that uh, one of these scientists, Cho, her name was on a patent in China, a patent application. And they, they went to her and they said, well, you know, what's going on here? Where did the work come from that led to this patent? Oh, it was the work at this lab. And they said, well, um, did you ask permission to work with these people? Did you get a collaboration agreement? No, there wasn't. And then it started to unravel from there. They discovered more and more work, particularly by Dr. Chu, Jingguo Chu, 
and her husband, Kenning Cheng, but her in particular, um, she basically helped China advance its infectious disease research uh, to a degree we still don't know. And of course, she was working with military researchers and the Chinese government's research into infectious diseases is not for humanitarian purposes. So um, she was let go because of this collaboration, but specifically because she hadn't got authorization for it. We discovered she was cross-posted to three Chinese universities. She was, she was set to receive funding from various Chinese bod, uh, bodies. And, uh, and then she lied and covered it up when they asked her about it. Uh, how does this happen, and has anything changed since they were let go? How does this happen? Uh, total lack of oversight. Um, nobody was minding the store. Uh, this, the, the Public Health Agency of Canada reports to the Minister of Health. So in theory, the Minister of Health is the one responsible uh, if we think about ministerial accountability. But we didn't see a lot of, um, of uh, admission by the government that they had been uh, had not mind, been minding the store properly. They tried to blame it on the PHAC management, which is, uh, in theory, an, an, an independent agency. So people just looked the other way or people weren't informed. In fact, uh, what came out from the CSIS investigation and the investigation of the public health agency is that she had methodically been building relationships and working at, for instance, the Wuhan Institute of Virology in, in Wuhan, and uh, Hebe University and military academies there without telling the Canadian government what she was doing. So it was um, brazen on her part. But then even when she was confronted by authorities, she, it took a while for her to admit things, to admit she had a Chinese bank account, to admit she'd been working, she'd uh, signed uh, agreements for, to receive funding. And uh, it was just a complete... Um, uh, it was a complete revelation to the government that this would be going on under their noses. How can we be reassured this isn't still going on? It's a good question. Uh, as I started out with, um, it was really disappointing as a journalist. It took three years uh, to figure this out. Um, when I say three years, they were they were escorted out of the lab in July 2019, but they were fired in 2021. And that's when the, the real um, attention began focused on this is, um, we're, we would hope that the government is paying closer attention to the collaborations that its top infectious disease scientists are under, undertaking, and we hope that they are uh, not allowing us to help advance the Chinese government's infectious disease research. They have said they are not sending vials of infectious diseases over there anymore, which is a good start and, and I think actually happened right away. Uh, but they aren't giving us a lot of uh, details on how they're curbing other participation, other collaboration. We're, uh, at this point, have to take it on faith until we start uh, maybe uh, doing access to information requests and uh, other sorts of ways of trying to make the government explain what actions it's taken, because it's not clear now how, 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 how tightly the door is closed. Um, I understand this was happening uh, prior to the last election in which there's allegations of election interference. And while we were trying to do a deal with China on a COVID-19 vaccine, is this any of that a factor? Well, we did find out that she was had uh, received funding and was working with uh, a Chinese Canadian company, which was um, among those trying to develop a, a vaccine. I am a CanSino. So, uh, that is still a bit of a, a, an unspooled thread. We have to look into that more. Um, and she, of course, worked with Dr. Chu, worked with a, a major general in the Chinese military who later went on to become a major figure in their COVID-19 uh, response and, in, their, uh, and in, their, in the science that followed that. So that is still, like I said, uh, that still has to be unwound. We're not, we're not we haven't quite got to the bottom of it yet. Canada stopped sharing dangerous pathogens, but some research collaboration continues between top Canadian virus lab and China. Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter with The Globe and Mail. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great work. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
We talked about this the other day, and we know what surge pricing is. When demand is up high, then you pay more. Uber, great example of this. Uh, when it's not as busy, you pay less. Well, Wendy's announced they were going to do this with their fast food industry. So I guess around lunchtime at dinner time, you're going to pay more. Whereas if you went at 10 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon, not as much. Well, by the time we could get a retail analyst on the line, they had already changed it and backed away from this. And so, uh, I don't think they're fully backed away from it, but certainly have um, have toned it down a bit. But Burger King, always quick to jump on, it countered Wendy's dynamic pricing in the United States by offering free Whoppers. Quote, we don't believe in charging guests more when they're hungry, Burger King wrote in a uh, news release, announcing it's no urge to surge offer. The only thing that's surging at BK is our flame. And basically what they did is they had an offer, and it expires today in the United States, Burger King. If you place a $3 order on your Burger King app, you will get a free I almost said Big Mac. A free Whopper, I guess. So uh, not only not only did Wendy's um, uh, sort of misstep here, but others taking advantage of it. But is this the end of uh, surge pricing? How come it works for Uber and not fast food? Eric Delensky is with us, Associate Professor of Marketing, Brock University's Goodman School of Business, and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. So why does this work for Uber, Eric, but not fast food? Okay. The biggest reason it comes down to for something like Uber or airlines is we're used to it. We expect that. Like when Uber came in and they they upended the taxi model, they had the uh, opportunity to change our expectations and norms about these things, right? And with something like airlines, uh, it's always, for as long as we can remember, been like this, that you know that if you go online or if you go years ago to a travel agency to get a airline ticket for Christmas or Thanksgiving, you're going to pay more than if you're going uh, in February. Um, So there's this expectation consumers have about what is okay. So that's the biggest driver, and that's the biggest reason why I think Wendy's got the reaction that they did. Uh, You can certainly see it in airlines as a great example. Uh, They used to have sell-offs during times when travel was not as busy. We've got empty planes, empty resorts. We'll give you a deal to go on board. It's not quite the same way with fast food. Uh, we got too much food in the freezer. We're going to give you a break here. It just seems seems they're using it more as an opportunity to gouge rather than give a discount. Well, that's the problem with it. And that's got this reaction, right, is... When we talk about supply and demand, we talk about availability or scarcity or just we know things are busy. We can understand that as consumers, we're going to think, okay, that's probably fair. When we think of Wendy's and we think of they're taking the meat out of the fridge or the freezer, they're taking the fries out of the freezer, or I believe what it was actually focused on was Frosties, which is coming out of the machine. Um, we don't think of it as being scarce, right? We don't think about, I better get my Frosty yeah. now because they're going to sell it. And the other side of it is this is food. I mean, you mentioned this in your intro to the segment. This is, are you charging people more when they're hungrier? That's a terrible look. I don't think that's what Wendy's was going for, but it's easy for people to interpret it that way. Um, and the third thing is we don't, as consumers, see a clear link to why it's worth more getting a Frosty at whatever, let's say uh, midnight or 1 a.m. after some people have been out drinking with friends and they just want something. Um, We don't see why that's worth more to us. Whereas if I'm going to go visit my family or friends and I can only do that when I get vacation time, which is the same time as everyone else gets vacation time, uh, Mm. then I understand, look, everyone wants this thing. There's only so many seats on the plane. I'm going to have to pay more. Uh, Wendy's, uh, is this a perfect example of Wendy's taking its eye off the ball or the burger here where it's less about the customer, more about profit? I don't know enough about how Wendy's made this decision. What I did read was their statement afterwards where they, where they walked this back. And the reason they gave, which, which we can believe or we cannot believe, uh, the reason they gave is, well, the person who made this announcement was saying we have the technological capability to do this. Didn't actually say we were going to, to, to do this. Um, it's about taking their eye off the ball and not caring about how consumers perceive them and much more about, well, we can do this, so let's think about maybe we should, as opposed to looking beyond the technological capability 
into what consumers actually value about Wendy's, what consumers actually think they're spending their money on when they go there. And I don't think there's thing that I don't think consumers think they're spending their money on um, out paying another customer to get something right now. Uh, what do you think of Burger King taking advantage of it with their uh, urge not to surge campaign? <laughs> uh, I think it's like you said at the beginning. They're really good at taking advantage of situations like this. They know they're a challenger brand. They're they're not McDonald's, um, so they need to do things that will get attention. I think this plays right into that same brand image that they've been cultivating for several years now, sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully. Uh, and by making this a short-term deal, yeah, they're giving away some free Whoppers, but they're getting a good media cycle out of it and maybe uh, getting people to try a Whopper where they would not have otherwise done so. Can we expect this uh, more of this in other industries? What other industries does it work in where we there won't be the public backlash? Uh, well, one industry that it's been quiet, not so quietly, but has been introduced in over the past 10 years or so is events. So if you want to go see a hockey game, you're going to pay more depending on who the opposing team is. Now, this is not a same, the same kind of fluid surge pricing. Let's wait and see what demand is going to be. It's much. It's more also resale. Like it would also it's be also resale, resale as well, yeah. too. Yeah. No, but, but some teams did uh, play around with the idea of mm-hmm. you know, popular teams coming to town. We're going to charge more. We're seeing this. I was just reading an article uh, yesterday. Cineplex is charging a buck more to go see Dune than to see other movies. Why? Because they know that people want to see Dune more than they want to see other movies. This is kind of a, a low-tech way of doing the same thing, but that's much more about we expect demand to be greater for these things than let's wait and see what demand is and then we'll raise our prices, which is really the, the surge part of surge pricing. Uh, not necessarily surge pricing, Eric, but something I wanted to touch on uh, with you. I was talking to an auto expert earlier. We were talking about car theft and such, and, and she was talking about subscription coming to the car industry. In other words, you want heated seats, you get them free for the first year, but then you got to pay for it after that as car companies turn their vehicles into little computers. Uh, where is this going? I I don't have a crystal ball. I can tell you as a consumer, I hate the idea, right? I, if yeah. I buy my car and I don't lease it, I want to own my car. I want to own all yeah. the parts of my car, including the heated seat. It's another one of those things where we can see from a business standpoint why the company would think this is a good idea. What is unclear, there's two aspects to this car one that's unclear. One is, will all the car companies follow suit? Because if they will, it's a done deal. It's going to happen. Because now as a consumer, you can't take your business elsewhere and tell these companies, I don't approve of this practice. The other is, how much of a backlash is there going to be from consumers? Um, Are they going to push back? Are people not going to buy a Mercedes or a BMW because they're engaging in this kind of practice where you have to rent your air conditioning? Um, (laughs) If the consumers walk, then they'll stop as long as the consumers have somewhere to walk to. Eric Delensky with us, Associate Professor of Marketing with Brock University's Goodman School of Business, talking about price surging and every other way they're trying to get more out of us. Eric, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I could not be better. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. I got so many last words. I'm going to use one on you. Okay. And we're, and we're going to, and then I'll read Steve's. This was Alex's. Alex. Uh, and he brought up an interesting point. As we mourn the loss of former uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, let me ask Canadians this question. What could Justin Trudeau learn from Brian Mulroney? So I'll ask you. Interesting question. Um, well, you know, I think one of the interesting things is, and I believe I was driving home last night because my show went to, at seven o'clock, we went to a national global news broadcast and I was driving home listening to that. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was on there. And I think it was Justin Trudeau who was either talking or being quoted. But one of the things that was said anyway was that Brian Mulroney had put aside his partisanship to help uh, back, you know, even earlier this year or last year, I guess. Yeah. With free Um, trade. Well, no, no. Well, yes. Yeah. When when that stuff was going on that Brian Mulroney stepped in to help Justin Trudeau and there's 
the very first one right there. We heard Justin Trudeau talking today about the China, the uh, Winnipeg lab sending stuff to China. Mm -hmm. And even as he's talking, he's saying this is Pierre Polyev coming up with conspiracy theories. And even in a moment like this, there was a lack of capability seemingly to not turn this into a partisan fight, even when the facts are clear. And if there's one thing perhaps that he might want to learn. Now, Brian Mulroney was a conservative and when he was in power, he was a conservative. There's no question. Mm -hmm. But he, as time went on, became a statesman. And maybe if there's one thing, there's one of them. It's interesting. Um, I was asking a guest, a guest about his take on the carbon tax, and uh, I ended up going back and finding an article in the CBC dated from October of 2016, and he said of the carbon tax, uh, and he's was once voted one of Canada's greenest prime ministers, Brian Mulroney was, uh, he said, we know that as soon as we render ourselves uncompetitive and our neighbors... Uh, our neighbors are ready to pounce. Then we're in difficulty at home. And what he was commenting on was the carbon tax and the fact that the Democrats or the Republicans uh, back then and still now are not interested in a carbon tax. And he said, if we did this and they didn't, uh, that uh, we, it would put us behind the eighth ball. And that's exactly what has happened. He, what he predicted has come true. Well, I mean, it was, uh, there's a lot of things that he did that were ahead. I mean, again, free trade was something that he was harangued for. I mean, that was almost a, it, it almost ruined his government. Yeah. And now look where we are. The, the liberals now are fighting for more free trade. Other governments have fought for yeah. more <laughs> yeah. free trade. Yeah. This is no law. This is not a conservative issue. It's actually the opposite now, almost in some cases. So, you know, one thing, Scott, I wanted to say this because I was thinking about something that Brian Mulroney was involved with in my life. Not, this is not like a personal met him or anything story, but, um, that says something about something political. I remember being in high school in the mid eighties, early eighties, mid eighties at a Blue Jays game. And I think it was a play, it may have been a playoff game anyway. And it was right in the middle. You may or may not have remember this of Tuna Gate. Do you remember Tuna Gate? Yeah. There yeah. was a, there was a scandal involving tainted tuna on the East yes. coast. And yeah. somehow I can't even remember the whole story of how Brian Mulroney was in, it was his government, I guess. So anyway, I'm at this Blue Jays game. I'm in high school. I know nothing about politics at all. Nothing. But when he, when they introduce Brian Mulroney or he goes out to throw out the first pitch, half of the audience, including me and my friends, because, Hey, this is what you do. Start <laughs> chanting tuna, tuna. I didn't have a clue. Oh, I did not have one idea why I was chanting tuna, except it sounded fun to do. And there was some leader out there who, and it made me think yesterday when I heard that he had passed away, this immediately came to mind. Start yelling tuna. No, about how many oh. people today make decisions about politicians or politics based on some stupid thing and they don't pay any attention to what's really going on, but there's a catchphrase or there's a picture or there's something and this becomes their defining idea of what that politician or person is. I was that person. I didn't know what I was doing, but it sounded great. And if you had asked me at that time and I had to vote, I probably would have said, no, I'm never going to vote for that guy because of tuna. I didn't even know what tuna was. You can replace tuna now with pharmacare. You can re you can replace it with any politician with any catchphrase if it's taken out of context or you don't do a little bit of work to try to understand what the heck the issue is that people are talking about. And I was completely without a scintilla of knowledge at that time about what I was doing, but it was just the cool thing to jump on board. But I think we have an awful lot of people today, Scott, who don't really put any effort into finding out what some of the issues are they see a thing on Twitter or they hear yeah. a friend say something and that becomes their reality. And that's kind of, it was pathetic on my part. It's pathetic now. Uh, so what could Justin Trudeau learn from Brian Mulroney? As I say, uh, find a little less partisanship and a little more statesmanship and a little less blaming and deflecting. I mean, there's another thing that you will say about Brian Mulroney. He was not always popular. But no. a lot of that was because he took, I, as my recollection, if he believed in something, he stood there and took the slings and arrows and said, yeah, I believe in that. And you can tee off on me all you want, but I still believe in it. 
And, and, you know, there is something, we don't see it as much now. And he, Mulroney was not the only one. There is something honorable about believing in it, not blaming anyone and saying, we're going to do this and this is why, and it's on me and I believe in this and here we go. That, you know, and it's not just Trudeau. There's a lot of politicians today. Maybe many could say that about Trudeau and the carbon tax. It, it, we could say that, as I say, about Trudeau or a lot of politicians. If you truly, truly to the core of your being believe in what you're pushing or what you're proposing and there is criticism to fly, don't deflect. Don't blame someone else. This is, I believe in this. I'm going to stand for this. It's Meech Lake. It's GST. It's whatever. Yeah. I believe in this free trade. It's going to happen and it's on me. Like it or not, it's on me and it's me and nobody else. And, and I, I think there's honor in that. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show and a great weekend. You too, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.